Today's episode is sponsored by Femix, Radix, and RSK. You'll hear more about them later in the episode. Hey everyone, this is your friend Bully, and you're listening to Bully Esquire. In this podcast, we chat with the movers and shakers from the worlds of finance, tech, crypto, politics, law, and media, and everything in between. Thanks for joining. Let's dive in. This podcast is powered by Blockworks, the fastest growing crypto media company. Blockworks has 20 crypto and finance podcasts, and I'm excited to be part of the network. Visit blockworks.co for access to the highest quality information in the space. I promise you won't be disappointed. Uh, Super pumped about my guest today. It's Mason Borda from the CEO and founder of Tokensoft. Mason, how are you doing? Hey, doing well. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Sure, sure. Um, so I like to tell all my listeners before we get started, of course, none of this is legal or investment advice. It's just a conversation we're having. If you have any questions, make sure to talk to your lawyer or financial advisor. So Mason, like I said, thanks for joining. Um, one thing I like to dive into before we get into kind of the broader topics and the, you know, what you're working on is sort of how you got here, how you, how you got into crypto how you ended up in this crazy space like the rest of us. Yeah. So I, I think the, the crypto story is, is, you know, really early on, um, uh, I had, I had a couple friends that were, that were close to me, bring up, uh, you know, bring up Bitcoin. And it was always the friends that like, you know, you don't always listen to what they say cause they're always on a different, on a different planet. And so, uh, I, I ignored it at first. Um, and then, uh, in 2013, uh, tried starting a, uh, a payment startup with my friend. We were trying to make a payments rail uh, for, for mobile apps. And uh, then I came across Bitcoin again because it was this peer-to-peer uh, electronic cash uh, network. And so um, just through that, uh, ended up building our platform on Bitcoin, or not on Bitcoin, but a fork of Bitcoin and trying to build a dollar-based blockchain uh, at first in looking at Bitcoin, playing around with it, uh, I didn't see how it'd be a payment system because, you know, the price was fluctuating and take really long to clear a transaction. And so, uh, first, first time around, I was, I was trying to build something, uh, better. And then, you know, over time you just learn <laughs> more and more about Bitcoin. Uh, the community is definitely more, uh, active. There's a lot of, uh, movement iteration in the space. And so just got sucked into that. Uh, went to a company called BitGo, uh, working there full time, and then that's how it all all started. Gotcha. So, do you you have a background as a software engineer then? Uh, so, actually, I, I studied uh, electrical engineering in college, and uh, I was actually working at a semiconductor company right before this, but worked at a bunch of aerospace companies too, and. Uh, my, my first startup, I actually taught myself to code. So I was just learning everything as I was going. Um, I had familiar with, uh, familiarity with like C++ and stuff like that. But that first startup was the first time where I like really dove in, figured out, you know, how to put up a website, how to uh, build applications, how to build an API and all that stuff. Sure. I'm, this is a bit of an aside here, I admit, but I'm always curious sort of how, <laughs> how you ended up taking the jump from you know, like a full-time sort of corporate after college gig to a startup. Like, you know, I always talk to people and they're like, that was the scariest decision of my life. Like, you know, I'm happy I did it, but it took a lot of willpower. What was going through your head or what made you make that jump at the time? 
so I always knew I wanted to like start my own business uh, and I, I didn't quite know what that was. I think the second thing that sort of drew me into this was just the combination of economics and technology. I always wanted to do something at the intersection. Um, Bitcoin was the first time I found something that was like ethical and, and also novel. Um, and then uh, I sort of just got sucked into it. Um, and I, I don't really have a good answer for, for why, but I can tell you it was, it was scary. Uh, the hardest thing is probably to explain it to your parents. And uh, I think four or five years later, uh, my, my mother finally stopped telling me to get a real job when I invited her to my office. Uh, and that was just, uh, I think that was just a couple of years ago now. Um, and so it's definitely scary, but at the same time, it was, it was a huge rush. I remember just sitting in one place, uh, for every waking hour, like falling asleep at, at one, uh, in front of my laptop, waking up at like six to keep coding. And, uh, it's sort of this, this rush that keeps you going and just the excitement of building something new and putting something out there. And, um, it's definitely scary, but like there's sort of, uh, for lack of a better term, you could say it's, it's a little bit of an addiction to sort of build new things, put them out there and just watch them grow. Sure. Yeah, totally. I'm starting to experience that feeling myself. I totally get it. Um, <laughs> one, one question. So, so you were, you were doing, you were dabbling in payment systems and then, um, you sort of switched to. Bitcoin based solutions and projects. And then now you have TokenSoft. So um, curious to hear about like how you decided to go that route, the, the sort of tokenization issue we'll get into in a second, but um, curious what made you make the leap to start a, a project specifically focused on tokenization of assets. Yeah, the the real answer is is very very boring, and uh, so I, I like to think of like technology in the crypto space as technology that sort of maps into regulations, whether people like realize it or not. Like all the DeFi stuff actually maps more or less into certain regulatory structures, um, and or, or most of it, or some of it at least. <laughs> um, Bitcoin as well. Uh, Bitcoin maps into a regulatory structure. It's completely peer to peer. There's no company that's running it. And that was actually designed for uh, plugging into a certain regulatory structure. So 2017 and before, I sort of see as the era of like virtual currency laws, like people trying to plug Bitcoin and other blockchains into uh, currency laws. Um, and as a result, all of the architecture and all the technology in the space sort of maps to that. And so you look at that, you look at exchanges and you sort of see that where every exchange is fully verticalized. Uh, they have compliance up front, they have trading in the middle and they have custody in the back. And uh, when I saw the SEC sort of say, hey, these assets might be securities in, in 2017, uh, what that meant to me was, hey, there might be a bunch of new technology that needs to be made uh, that helps this, this, this blockchain stuff map into securities regulations. And so um, I sort of saw an open field to build technology in, in the space. And uh, I thought that if, if I was first, uh, then I'd have a little bit of a moat because I'd be building the technology first it would map into the regulations the best. Uh, and therefore we would have the best technology for, for the security space. Um, and that's sort of true. It's, it's like um, the regulations for exchanges are usually domestically uh, set up. And so everyone's following your laws domestically. But with securities, you, you have to follow the regulations internationally. 
And so you have to follow them country by country. And so our technology does some really weird things in terms of onboarding a lot of people through a lot of countries, through a lot of unique uh, regulations, uh, regulatory requirements. Uh, and so that's that's really the reason. It's, it's just I saw an opening and decided, you know, this is where we want to have some, some some prominence. Sure. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And I've, I've certainly, like, done deep dives into this area as sort of a corporate attorney that practices in the crypto space. Like, I, I certainly agree with you that some of these systems, DeFi, like you mentioned in particular, seems to almost be attempting to recreate um, the regulatory systems that already exist. Like people will be like, Oh, you invented shares. Congratulations. <laughs> um, but I, I, I've, one thing I've noticed that I find interesting too, and maybe another aside here is kind of the governance token side of DeFi projects. Um, and all of this stuff is heavily, heavily statutorily imposed. Like if you look at Delaware law, you know, Delaware courts and the legislature there have been working on governance mechanics for the last hundred years. So it's interesting to see these new kind of digital communities crop up and be like, we're going to reinvent governance. And it's like, well, just look at what Delaware's done the last hundred years and you'll have a pretty good place to start because, you know, there's all of these issues about, well, you need certain thresholds for voting. You need to have a quorum for board meetings, things like that sort of simple stuff that the community and the DeFi side I see struggle with a lot. I'm like, oh, that stuff already exists. That framework already exists. And maybe it's not perfect, but, and maybe it could use some tweaking to account for sort of the digital um, novelty of these assets. But at the same time, like don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You can gain a lot by exploring the work folks have already done. Um, do you, I mean, I, I assume that a lot of your systems are built kind of around that idea. Like, listen, securities laws already exist. Let's sort of conform with those laws and then use those laws to build and implement these new technologies. Is that sort of the thought process behind it? Yeah. So when starting this company, I was sort of seeing, you know, what are the variables and what, what's static. And so, uh, what's, what's static or what's, what's variable at least is, is the technology, uh, and what's static in this case is really the regulatory environment. Um, as you know, as a startup, it's really hard to change laws. And so from the beginning, we sort of uh, had the perspective of what are the current laws out there and how can we map the technology into these laws? Uh, and so that's that's sort of how we rolled this all out. And that, that was our perspective. Um, but yeah, that's that, that's that's sort of how we see it. Mm -hmm. That's a great. I, I really like that idea. What's variable? What's static? I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to steal that. I love that. Um, <laughs> So, okay. Um, now let's unpack this giant topic of tokenization. So, you know, this is kind of a buzzword in the space. You hear people say, oh, we should tokenize everything, tokenize the world. Um, curious to hear like what, what you're specifically focused on with regards to tokenization um, and what, what you think sort of the broad benefits of tokenization are. Um, I know that's a huge question, but I guess I'm, I'm curious to hear kind of from your point of view, building what you're building and how long you've been studying this topic. What do you think are really like the, the key benefits or key points our listeners should consider when thinking about tokenization? Yeah, so I, I sort of think of it as taking something that's 
either, you know, tangible in the real world or intangible, uh, you know, sourcing from, from the blockchain world and making a token that represents that. So making a digital asset that represents something tangible or intangible and uh, that digital asset in the world of, of, of blockchain and tokenization is also interoperable on all the infrastructure that's out there. And I think that's sort of the key piece that actually makes it interesting. So you can basically take anything that's out there, whether it's uh, real estate, company equity, uh, revenue sharing rights, um, or it could be another blockchain, um, or it could be a mix of other blockchains. And now you can represent it as a single asset uh, on the Ethereum blockchain or another blockchain um, and have it be interoperable with all of the apps on top of that blockchain and have it be tradable. And this is sort of like the first time something like this was possible. And it's because like right now, it, Ethereum, which is the most prominent blockchain, I would say, in terms of uh, apps and, and, and users, um, is sort of an interconnectivity layer between anything, anything that's out there, anything that people want to plug into this, they can. And all of a sudden it's accessible globally and it's, it's, it's peer to peer. Um, and so that's something that's new and different. And so when we're talking about tokenization, you know, we've uh, tokenized, uh, we've done tokenized equity, tokenized funds. Um, and uh, more recently, we did some SEC registered tokens. And so one is a U.S. Treasury backed stable coin. And so now you can access U.S. Treasuries on the Ethereum blockchain and it's, it's fully regulated. Uh, and uh, another company we worked with, INX. And so now... Uh, they are tokenizing 40% of their cash flows. And so when you own their token, now you have access to that. Um, and, you know, other examples, uh, we've recently taken uh, other layer one blockchains and put them on Ethereum. Um, so uh, Wrap Zcash and more recently Wrap Filecoin uh, is another one that's out on Uniswap now. And so you can, uh, I guess where I've landed is you can technically tokenize anything. It's just a matter of figuring out the regulatory structure and then you can sort of put anything on the on the Ethereum blockchain. And so that's what it is. It's taking something tangible or intangible, putting on Ethereum blockchain. Now everyone can plug into it. Sure. And, you know, I think one thing I've heard a lot of people say in the system, and I'm curious on your take, since you've really sort of seen the nuts and bolts of this, is the legacy system is sort of a mishmash of different systems and languages and um, actors and regulations that all have trouble and create friction throughout the transactional flow, no matter sort of really what the asset class is, there's always these inefficiencies and frictions. Um, do you think tokenization having sort of one, as you call it, under layer, um, like Ethereum, that can drive or sort of act as the network backbone to all of these different systems, is that what's driving the efficiencies here? So you can sort of take it out of this inefficient system where all of these different actors create friction and put it into more of a seamless system that reduces cost, it, uh, I guess, increases security and um, lowers transaction times. Is that, am I getting that right? <laughs> Uh, those, are, those are certainly benefits. I think, yeah, if you, if you look at these large like financial insurance companies, uh, all their stuff is in like 10 different databases and none of them are connected. And so just to do anything is a huge undertaking. Uh, now that people are putting assets on, on the blockchain, uh, these assets are now uh, interoperable, accessible. Um, you can move them rather cheaply, uh, definitely like relative. Um, and 
I think those are those are definitely the benefits. Um, but I think there's also something really powerful about just building in a completely new paradigm where everyone can see what you're doing and everyone can tell you if you're doing things right or uh, if you're, you know, if you're, if they don't like what you're doing. Uh, and so I think that level of transparency is definitely unique and is sort of allowing the space to iterate a lot faster and to get more people excited about it too. Sure. Yeah, no, there seems to be sort of like this push where like everyone's building at the same time and everyone can see what everyone else is building. So like it kind of moves faster because of that. Um, one, one question I hear a lot and I have the same question and I know you guys work a lot kind of on the tokenization of real estate stuff. I find that topic pretty interesting and I don't know really much about the mechanics or process of actually tokenizing a piece of real estate. Is it like, can you walk me through exactly how all of that works? Um, I mean, from, I guess, the technology side to sort of the legal side, like, is there a deed? Um, are there secondary markets? Is one token like a square foot or is one token a piece of property itself? Uh, how, how do you guys approach that? Or maybe it's a case by case thing. I'm just, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the, the real estate side of things in particular. Yeah, because we've always had this paradigm where we sort of plug into existing regulatory structures or as a result, existing paperwork. Um, as long as it can be packaged into a contractual agreement that has units, we can represent it on the blockchain. And that's probably the simplest way to, uh, <laughs> to get it across. Um, but with the real estate example specifically, if you can put the real estate in an LLC, then we can tokenize it. So we're not necessarily tokenizing the real estate directly and making putting those deeds on the blockchain. That would be a much greater undertaking that would probably require, uh, you know, city and local support as well as support of a very large real estate company that wanted to undertake this. Um, probably the most efficient way to do it is just to purchase the whole city or a giant plot of land and build a city <laughs> with this blockchain based system. Um, but as long as you can put it into an LLC, we, we can basically tokenize it. So the way it works is, uh, let's say it's a hundred thousand dollar home, uh, that is now owned by an LLC. And now you can sell shares in that LLC that own that owns that home. And so you could sell a hundred shares of this, uh, let's say for a thousand dollars each, um, and a hundred investors come in. Uh, then, uh, then what happens is basically sign a piece of paper that says, uh, you know, I, I'd like to purchase this and it's a, it's a binding contractual agreement. Uh, and then for every share that they purchase, we now put one token on the blockchain and send it to that investor. And so for every unit that you own on paper, now you own that unit on the blockchain as well. And you know, a lot of this infrastructure is still being built up, but theoretically this is uh, transferable anywhere. And now you can go sell it in, in, in any trading venue that you'd like. Um, and so that's the sort of like interoperability piece of it. Um, and uh, it's, it, yeah, that's, that's basically the whole value chain. It's, it's, it's that simple. Gotcha. And so in the example you say, 
And I, I have more questions about the secondary market piece, which I'll get into in a second. But in that example, say I, I own the token and I also have this contract that says I own one unit in this LLC um, that's worth 1% of this LLC. Is there a way to protect for going out and selling that unit or selling the token to you, but actually I'll keep the piece of paper and then I can go and sort of sell the piece of paper to someone else is, you know, I, I think you probably see what I'm getting at, but is there a way to sort of protect against um, this arbitrage in the physical world versus the digital world and even worse, maybe some potential fraud there? Yeah, and I, I think I think it comes down to the role of the transfer agent. So in, in private markets with real estate, um, there's always paperwork that is preceding the transaction. Um, and so that's sort of the annoying part in private markets. If you're looking at an ATS, those can basically allow for like the, the more free and sort of for the free transfer. And then you basically like settle, but there still needs to be sort of a transfer agent in that case to sort of settle into or to update the records of otherwise it's, it's all has to be preceded by paper. So the space is, is not quite to the point where you can put your real estate on the blockchain and it's completely freely transferable. Um, sure. If yeah, you're no, looking at, sense. if you're looking at registered securities, I think that's where it becomes a lot more interesting. So with like INX, uh, the transfer agent is basically tracking in the back in an automated way uh, who owns what. And it's basically like keeping records end of day every day. And so people can actually go and transfer that freely. Uh, and the, uh, our transfer agent just reads, uh, reads the records from the blockchain and updates its records um, to sort of keep track of who owns what in, in real time. And so there's some distinction there between like registered securities that don't have a transfer agent registered securities that are on ATS that have a transfer agent and then registered securities. Sure. So let's, let's talk about that INX example. I think you referred to it earlier when you said that, I think you said they're tokenizing 40% of their um, revenue or income flow. Um, so how, how did, how did you guys get there? I think this is probably an interesting story because it seems like sort of a, the culmination of a lot of hard work, I imagine. And I'm just curious to hear, like, what was the process behind developing that tokenization that I guess you said it's an, an actual IPO, right? Yeah. So that one is structured as an F1 offering. So foreign company doing an IPO in the U S and just a caveat for every, anything I mentioned about them, uh, please just double check the prospectus. Um, cause Sometimes I, I tend to uh, f forget a little bit or, or, or waver a little bit. Um, so uh, for, for the INX deal, um, they're basically tokenizing, yeah, 40% of their cash flows. And so if you owned, uh, own the token, now you have rights to some portion of, of that cash flow. Um, and there's sort of like two sides to this. There's what the issuer does, and then there's what TokenSoft does as an infrastructure provider. And so obviously... If you want to IPO, you have to go through this very lengthy registration process where you're basically explaining to the U.S. Uh, to, to the to the SEC uh, in a format of their choice uh, the what you're going to do and how you're going to fundraise, and uh, that's basically what you're doing in an IPO. You have to go get regulatory approval. 
And so you have to submit all these forms to the SEC. They have to take a look and they basically have to say, uh, okay, this looks good. Uh, and then you can move forward and they don't approve anything. They just say, okay, go, go ahead. <laughs> so there's never explicit approval from the SEC. Um, and so that, that's one side of it is the issuer just disclosing what they're doing, disclosing all the risks, making sure everyone has full transparency about, about what's happening. Uh, and then they can move forward into the IPO. In traditional IPOs, what's, what happens is you get listed on an exchange. And so that's, that's one misconception here is, is uh, an IPO is actually just getting through the offering portion of that. It's an initial public offering. And so this, is, this sort of precedes any secondary market trading or any trading of any sort. Um, and so on the other side of things, uh, there's, uh, there's the infrastructure provider. So in this case, it's TokenSoft. Um, and in order to prepare for this, we had to get a, a little bit of infrastructure set up. So we set up a transfer agent uh, because any company that's publicly trading has to name a transfer agent and they have to designate that transfer agent to keep the books and records of uh, you know, what do all the investors hold at any point in time. Uh, and then they also have to be able to service the investor. So if they lose their shares or if a shareholder passes away and now those shares are handed over to the, to the trustee, uh, the transfer agents have a process for that. Um, and so we have to get that in place uh, just because it's a requirement. Um, and so getting that set up was a little bit of regulatory work. Um, so the high level is uh, there's lawyers involved uh, there's people internally that we have to train to understand all the procedures that a transfer agent has, um, because with any regulatory license, uh, there are certain procedures and operational uh, controls that you have to have. And so getting that set up was one piece of it. Uh, and uh, we hired uh, at some point uh, Alex Levine, who's a former SEC CFTC. And so he sort of helped us um, figure that out and also uh, started explaining to the SEC uh, how all this technology worked and then how the transfer agent worked with respect to that technology. And so that's sort of a key piece. And so I would say that process took maybe a year and a half. Um, yeah, I think it was uh, the entire process really took two years because first we started educating the SEC on just how the technology worked at a high level. And that started somewhere between February and April of 2018 um, I just wanted to start conversations with them proactively just so they knew what was going on. Um, and uh, we were sort of blazing the trail a little bit. So I, I wanted to also get a feel for whether we were doing things right and just get, get the temperature on, on how we're thinking about things. So uh, proactively reached out and started conversations then. Um, and then end of 2018, uh, or sorry, end of 2019, got our transfer agent together. And so now started explaining to the SEC, hey, this is how this technology that we told you we already had works in conjunction with our transfer agent. Uh, and so at some points, they got comfortable with the issuer side of it, as well as the technology side of it and understanding how all that worked. Uh, and, and here we are today. And so some, some key pieces that the SEC just wants to understand are like, what happens if the blockchain forks? Are there two securities now? And, you know, just very elementary questions that, you know, anyone would have. Um, what happens if someone loses their wallet? Do investors lose shares now? Um, and, and a lot of this is just because the SEC is really structured for investor protections. 
Um, and this is actually a really good thing about the security token space is now there's a, a regulator that's sort of backing you up on the blockchain and looking out for you. Um, and so uh, that's all that they were trying to get to at the end of the day. And I think we just sort of opened the door now. So any company out there uh, can sort of go through this registration process. And there's already infrastructure today that exists to, to help support them. I've used a lot of exchanges over the years, and they all seem to have their problems from a lack of volume to bad buggy UI or the exchange crashing when Bitcoin makes a big move. Until now, that is. Femex is a new derivatives and spot exchange launched last November by a group of former Morgan Stanley execs. Femex sports lightning fast transactions, the ability to handle many transactions at once so you don't need to worry about it crashing during big moves, deep order books and real verified volume. They have several different trading pairs and leverage options. They also have low trading fees and a killer ref plan. Be sure to use this URL for my welcome bonus. Femex, P-H-E-M-E-X dot com slash A slash bully. Again, Femex dot com slash A slash bully. Check it out. Today's episode is sponsored by Radix. In the current financial system, transactions are slow, inefficient, and expensive. And even suppose a decentralized finance platforms, or DeFi for short, like Ethereum, were not designed to support the number and speed of transactions necessary to scale DeFi. Ethereum's solution for this is sharding, which results in scalability at the cost of composability. Radix is a new cutting-edge layer one platform for DeFi applications. Radix is specifically designed for DeFi, providing speed, security, and scalability. Radix uses its own next-generation consensus system called Cerberus, which has achieved over 1 million transactions per second in recent testing. Try doing that on Ethereum. Learn more at radixdlt.com. That's R-A-D-I-X-D-L-T.com. The DeFi revolution is the next big opportunity in the crypto financial market. RSK, the Bitcoin-based smart contract platform, is hosting exciting, secure, and rewarding apps that allow you to trade, lend, and borrow on the most robust smart contract platform, powered by more than 60% of Bitcoin's computational power. For the holders out there, why let your Bitcoin just sit there when it could be earning you money? Put your Bitcoin to work, trade without selling, spend without selling, lend and borrow on the most trusted network in the world. Hop on to rsk.co slash open finance to be part of the future and start making money on your Bitcoin today. Again, rsk.co slash open finance. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I have a lot of questions. <laughs> First, is, is INX, is that this ink company I found online or is, is that what their business offering is? Do you know off the top of your head what they're actually like? if they're a sort of a traditional company or if they're more in the blockchain space? Yeah, so uh, it's called INX Limited. Uh, it's a, a digital currency and security token exchange. Gotcha. Uh, gotcha. It's a new company that's being set up. Um, the US lead for this is uh, Alan Silbert, who I'm, I'm sure you know. Oh, sure, yeah. And, uh, and so this is sort of in the process of, of, of getting launched. So um, I've just been sort of lurking in their telegram, just following the progress here. And it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's sort of exciting to see a company go through not only the IPO process, but now also uh, just the traditional startup process in, in launching a product. For sure. So you mentioned the IPO process doesn't necessarily mean they will be listed on an exchange, but I assume that these 
units or shares or however you denominate them are are listed on some sort of secondary market. Is that right? Yeah, and and that's the whole reason this space exists is uh, just to provide additional liquidity and interconnectivity. Um, and so I'm sure it's a goal to get on different venues out there, um, but I, I don't have any I don't have any visibility into into that process uh, for any of our, our customers really. Um, but theoretically, now when you launch a token, whether it's through an IPO or, or, or whatever. Um, you, you now have interconnectivity into every exchange out there that's on the Ethereum blockchain. And so theoretically, they just have to flip a switch to support your token. And so all of this like bureaucracy that, that exists in the IPO process, I think INX is a really good case study for how they're sort of breaking through that. They're doing their IPO, but direct to the public. So when you go buy shares from, from INX, you're not going through an investment bank. It's not some exclusive process and um, you're going actually directly to the company. Um, and so that's sort of like one interesting aspect of it. Mm -hmm. And then once, once the token is on the blockchain and, and right now this token is, is on the Ethereum blockchain. Uh, now, theoretically, this can plug into any wallet out there that supports Ethereum and any exchange out there that supports Ethereum as well. And so that's definitely one exciting piece of, of this whole space is just with a click of a button, you're now connected to everything that's out there on, on Ethereum. So with this direct offering point of view, is it, is it anyone or is it accredited investors? It, is it, so could like a U.S. retail non-accredited investor go and buy some? Okay, um, we're about to get into some fun, quirky legal stuff. Uh, so if, if you're a foreign company doing an IPO in the U.S., you also have to follow state-by-state -state requirements. And so some states might say, if you're an IPO, you can just go ahead and sell. Some states might say, hey, you need registration explicitly for my state. Some states might say, uh, you can only sell to credit investors like private placements. If you're a US company doing an IPO in the US, now you can sell to anyone. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's the differentiation there. So it's, it's really complicated. And um, for US companies that are IPOing in the US, yeah, they can, they can theoretically offer to anyone. Uh, and this is not legal advice, please seek your own counsel. Uh, but uh, with the foreign companies doing this in the US, yeah, there's, there's a, a bit more hoops. And then, uh, so the IPO process is just one sort of regulatory path that a company could take. I've seen other companies doing like Reg A Plus, for example. Um, do you, are you guys working on those avenues as well? Like, would you, would you provide plat a platform for that type of offering as well? Yeah. So right now, as of today, we're the only company that's servicing tokens that are SEC registered and, and publicly available on, on the blockchain. And so you could, we can replicate this on any other uh, registered security sort of uh, so reg registration. And so we can, uh, our infrastructure can now support Reg A, Reg A plus, uh, CF. Um, it's this combination of technology and the transformation that's necessary for any of these, uh, registered offerings. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, at least in my experience, most, most companies raising cash do Reg D, right? Like just a accredited <laughs> investor unregistered 
do you guys support that to, you know, if you're, if you're a company and you're like, ah, I just want to do my series C reg D like I always do, but I just want to tokenize it. Is that something you guys would handle as well? Most, yeah, most companies that we work with, uh, especially when it's like blockchains doing token sales or just uh, people doing token sales on Ethereum, these are all like private placement Reg D offerings. They might be Reg D 5, 6 C. Um, and so, yeah, we, we, we have done a, a ton of those as well. Sure. And 506 C is just when, when you don't know the accredited investor buying, or you have to do some sort of like solicitation, I think, is that your understanding? Yeah. At a high level, Reg D 506 B, like when it's, when a startup goes and fundraises and they send out a safe or they, they're doing a series a that's usually Reg D 506 B and I don't know what the current laws are because I know they're changing, but that structure is like you can take 35 unaccredited investors um, or discredited investors, whatever the term is. Uh, and then everyone else has to be accredited. And, and basically the gist of that one is don't market it or tell anyone you're fundraising. And then 506C is basically if you jump through all these hoops, now you can tell anyone that you're fundraising is totally fine as long as you follow these rules. And so that's the main difference is whether you can publicly talk about it or you can't. And so back to the INX example, you mentioned, oh, the SEC had some, some basic questions. You know, I think I might have some of those basic question, <laughs> questions too here. So it, you, you mentioned it's on the Ethereum blockchain, yes? Yes, that's correct. So everything is transparent. It's sort of like just an ERC-20 or something. Is that right? Uh, we, we use something called ERC-1404. Okay. Uh, and basically what ERC-1404 says is uh, it's, it's like a wrapper around an ERC-20 token. So it's, it's compatible with any ERC-20 infrastructure. And it basically says, uh, okay, before you, uh, you send, you can now check if a transaction is valid. And, and basically what we have is there's a bunch of different lists, investor lists, and um, different lists are allowed to like trade with each other or certain lists just aren't allowed to trade at all. Uh, and this is how we sort of segregate country by country. So there can be a U.S. list and there can be a non-U.S. list. Um, and all, all the rules around this are in Edgar. Um, so if you just search for 1404 on Edgar, it's actually the only security token standard that's been through a registration. Uh, and you can sort of get a feel for, for how that works. Um, there's some other bells and whistles, like there's the owner and admin concept. So, um, we allow other people to also do the whitelisting for, for allowing investors to be on one of these lists to trade. And, and basically the gist of it is these investors have to go through certain onboarding procedures, KYC ML procedures to be allowed to trade. And so there has to be, be a gate for that. And this is why the standard exists, but that's what it goes on. Gotcha. And you got, is, is that, is that gatekeeper the transfer agent then you guys in this case? Yeah. So in with INX and ARCA, uh, the transfer agent is that, yeah, is that gatekeeper. Gotcha. Okay. And then, you know, you mentioned the, the question that SEC may have had about, well, what happens if someone loses their wallet? So what happens if someone loses their wallet? They, uh, so with, with that process, uh, the transfer agent has a investigation process. So if you claim that you lost your funds, uh, your wallet's going to be frozen. 
and you're going to go through a invest. There's going to be an investigation process. So the transfer agent has to verify your claim and make sure that you actually lost your wallet. And if your claim is found to be true, the transfer agent has the ability to uh, revoke the assets that were in that wallet um, and put it into a new wallet for you. And so that's what happens. And, you know, wouldn't it be nice to have this on Bitcoin? <laughs> I think that'd be great. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I'm, I'm sure a lot of my listeners are having a heart attack right now thinking, well, you know, like your keys, your custody, sort of the, the libertarian arguments we always hear to, to Bitcoin. But there is something to be said, I suppose, about some sort of backstop or some sort of entity, but this is the the tension that's inherent in this community. It's like, on one hand, you want some level of protection because protection's nice. But on the other hand, that protection requires a centralized actor. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, you're sort of just recreating the same system we already have. But to my point earlier, maybe that system's in place because it works really well. And like people don't like to lose their coins and then never be able to have any sort of mechanism to recover them. Um, so I, there's, I, I can sort of see clearly both arguments on both sides and I'm not really sure where I come down, but in your particular case where you're answering to a federal regulator, um, and a lot of money's at stake, it makes a whole lot of sense to have protections in place to protect investors. So you don't just throw your hands up and say, well, sorry, too bad you lost the keys or you lost your wallet and, and that's it. Um, yeah. So, 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 so yeah, yeah. Crypto is all about like, um, you know, owning your own assets. Mm -hmm. And for the first time in the history of the world, there's now a, a regulator that exists for the purpose of making sure that you own your assets. And <laughs> so it's like the benefit of the technology is here, but also there's a regulator that's sort of looking out for you. So I think it's sort of a, a, a great thing that definitely isn't appreciated today, but I think, you know, five to 10 years from now, I think there's going to be a lot of interesting use cases and, and benefits that come out from this. Sure. So, um, I mentioned earlier this governance piece, and I know you guys deal a lot with like the disbursement and propagation of equity. So like if, if, if a company has shares and they're selling shares, you guys are really good at sort of sending and receiving and creating those instruments, those tokens that represent equity um, or, you know, ownership. Do you guys have, has there been any focus on governance? Like if, you know, because if, if I own a share, I'm entitled to a percentage of, of the company's revenue or I own a portion of the company, but I may also be entitled to vote those shares, right? Like if, if I own 100,000 shares and I want to vote on a new board member or, you know, we, they want to sell the company, but I don't agree with it. So I want to vote against that board decision. Is there any sort of mechanism yet in place to tokenize that governance aspect of, uh, uh, of a company's operations and management? Yeah. So I think where we've sort of landed in the security token space so far is we figured out how to uh, treat tokens as equity. And so I'd say our technology stack is really good at treating tokens as equity or debt or even, even derivatives. Um, 
and 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 if you look at a traditional entity uh there's equity and then there's like all the governance pieces that you're you're mentioning as well and i think what the blockchain space is doing it's it's basically like unbundling this company structure one by one and it's putting one piece out there at a time and then it's like connecting it to everyone around the world and so it's exactly like you said it's like people are figuring out all the problems when you do that like one by one um, and obviously people aren't going to go study the history of, of, of these laws to, uh, before they build. And so naturally <laughs> they're going to come from the other, other side of it. Um, and so I'd say like, so far we've figured out, you know, how do you put it on the blockchain, uh, when it comes to, uh, dividends distributions, uh, we do elements of that, uh, when it comes to governance, um, I think there's a, a project out there that's sort of more focused on automating all this stuff. And they've really like captured our, our attention and, and we've been trying to uh, figure out ways to partner together. It's called Actus Protocol. And uh, these guys are sort of taking all of those very granular concepts and then standardizing and then automating them on the blockchain. Um, I wouldn't say we're necessarily doing that right now. Um, another place where you sort of see governance crop up is with all these like DAO structures, every blockchain now has governance. Um, you know, before uh, Bitcoin governance was uh, limited to, uh, you know, yelling at each other on mailing lists and forums and, uh, you know, trying to get your pull request approved on, on, on the GitHub. And uh, at some point, you know, Tezos uh, came along and said, we want on-chain governance. Um, and now that sort of became the default with every DeFi app out there. Um, and so there's a lot of really good technology for doing governance like that, it's still very scrappy. It's still a little bit tribal. Uh, I think over time, it'll probably mature into the standards and procedures that we have today for traditional corporate governance. Um, but those are sort of like, that's where our technology is today. And Actus is like some technology that's sort of abstracting this and taking it to the next level, but formally. And then you have the DAO structures, which are very scrappy organic coming from the other side of it and just trying to solve a problem for today. And then hopefully that'll mature over time. Sure. Uh, another thing I wanted to ask you about is I saw a recent announcement when I was preparing for this about you guys expanding into Europe. Um, just curious about sort of the regulatory arbitrage piece of this, or maybe it's not even arbitrage. Maybe it's just like you said earlier on the call, every country has different securities laws. You have to account for those. Is there, are you guys, mainly focused on the US? Are you sort of focused also on Europe now? How's how's that process going? Okay, so when we started, uh, we just got pulled into supporting regulations in different countries. So the most countries we've uh, helped our customers comply in is over 50. And so we basically had unique onboarding flows for investors uh, pursuant to their uh, local regulations in over 50 countries and, and there's different pieces of that right like that's just for the offering now when you're getting into trading there's another bucket of loss that exists there um, that european announcement was um, uh, there is a tokensoft distributor called tokensoft international ag uh, and that services uh, you know some european customers as well as seba bank uh, which is a finma licensed uh, bank and, you know, when we're sort of looking at servicing these institutions in different countries, they all have their own rule book. And 
what that announcement was about was about was really, hey, we have this piece of infrastructure that now exists for the European market that complies with uh, laws that you may have to comply with in, in Europe if you're a regulated institution or, or more specifically Switzerland, uh, which is not in Europe. Uh, but uh, the, the laws sometimes overlap across the different regions there. Um, sure. And so that's what that was about. Um, and I think that's sort of one of the fun uh, but maybe a little bit annoying uh, pieces of the space, depending on how you're looking at it, is like wherever we go, the regulations are structured differently. So we have to build into them a little bit differently. Uh, and that's not, you know, that, that announcement isn't necessarily uh, unique. Like we're not just going into the European market. Like you can use our technology wherever you want. It's just a matter of uh, uh, puzzling the Lego pieces together. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. Um... One more thing I wanted to talk about is these, the wrapping you guys are doing. I saw the, you know, you mentioned Filecoin and I also saw your announcement about Zcash. Um, what's, what's going on there? Are you guys like, are you working with the Zcash foundation on wrapping that? Or is that a separate effort that you guys have through a different customer? Or are you guys doing that yourself? Or how, how'd you get there? And then like, what does that mean exactly? In my uh, spare time for fun, I do a lot of uh, regulatory R&D, um, which is very exciting. <laughs> and one of the things that we sort of landed on in terms of things we could put out there was just wrap tokens. And we saw stuff like wrap BTC and you know, we were like, okay, well actually we have infrastructure that can scale this really fast. Like we can do an asset per day if we wanted. Um, and so we were looking for uh, what to roll out first. And on Twitter, I saw CMS Holdings tweet something to the tune of, we want wrap Zcash. And we we're already working on, the, on wrapping something. Uh, and so we were like, I, I reached out. I was like, hey, let's, uh, you know, we'd love to help you guys out. We'd, we'd love to help you do this. And so, uh, we ended up going down the path of, of wrapping Zcash, and the first, yeah, the first customer of this was was CMS Holdings, and um, the Zcash Foundation was not involved in this. Um, I wasn't sure how to how to sort of launch this, so you could do this as you know, wrap Zcash as a standalone community project, sort of how like wrap Bitcoin is is put out there. Uh, I, I sort of wanted to do something scalable because I want to do a ton of these um, because it's a lot of fun. And so uh, we we did wrap Zcash. We did it independently. We did it under the wrap.com brand. Uh, this is a partnership between ourselves, Anchorage, and, and CMS, people that helped us get started here. And um, and so basically Anchorage is, is the custodian in this situation, and we have the tokenization infrastructure. So we sort of uh, service them in putting the wrapped assets out there. Gotcha. And uh, yeah, wrapped Zcash is the first one and the foundation is not involved, although they've been, they've been pretty supportive uh, so far. Can you walk me through what that means? Um, so like, say I, I own Zcash, can I wrap it or do I have to go through, you know, you guys or Anchorage or, how does that work? And then once I have the wrap Zcash, does that just mean I can like farm it on or, or use it on Uniswap or yeah, I'm just, how do I get it? And then what can I do with it? 
Yeah, so this is sort of the interoperability piece. So at the beginning, I was sort of talking about how uh, you can take something tangible like real estate or equity or something intangible and now put it on the Ethereum blockchain and connect to everything that's out there that's Ethereum-based. And so what wraps Zcash is, is you can take Zcash, whether it's a transparent address, shielded address, uh, and now you can uh, go through our process, send in your Zcash, and if you send 10 Zcash in, you will receive 10 wrapped Zcash in your Ethereum wallet. Or if you send 10 wrapped Filecoin, or sorry, if you send 10 Filecoin in, you will receive 10 wrapped Filecoin in your Ethereum wallet. And now you can take this wrapped Zcash and you can uh, set a, a supply liquidity to Uniswap. You can supply liquidity to MooniSwap or SushiSwap or whatever swap. And now people can, on the other side, buy and sell this asset. Uh, this asset can also be put in any of the DeFi apps. And so now it can be used as collateral to farm. Uh, we also have a proposal up for Maker. So now you can take your wrapped Zcash and you can take out a loan and die on it if, if that gets approved. Um, and so this is basically connecting Zcash with every DeFi app that you know and love and allows you to use it in, in those applications. I have a sort of a quick question about that. Obviously, Zcash has privacy built in if you're using the shielded feature. So could I potentially send in my shielded Zcash, get wrapped Zcash, go out, farm a bunch of stuff, send my wrapped Zcash back to my wallet, and then get my Zcash back? And I suppose from there, that sort of breaks the visibility line that someone may have into the actions that have occurred through the Ethereum wallet. I'm, I'm just trying to think if there's any sort of benefit from a privacy point of view from using the Zcash and then kind of bringing it out and back into the system. So there's no way of, of a third party identifying what transactions you have been involved in. I suppose anything occurring on the Ethereum blockchain is public, but anything using the Zcash shielded wallets would be private. So it, maybe that's not the most artful question, but hopefully you see what I'm getting at is, do you think the wrapped Zcash can bring any aspect of privacy to the Ethereum network? Or do you just think, well, no, it's just a way to leverage your Zcash that's sitting in a wallet and put it to good use. Well, you know, you just want to hold it. Uh, well, Billy, our, our real mission here is to de-anonymize all Zcash holders. Just kidding. So, <laughs> right. Uh, right. so through this service, uh, let's say you're holding your Zcash in a in, in the shielded pool, or you have it in a T address, uh, and basically that means it's either being used in anonymous way or it's being used in a transparent way that's trackable on the blockchain. And so let's say you have a thousand Zcash. You can now opt, if you're really worried about privacy and people knowing about your holdings and all that stuff, you can now wrap a small portion of that. You can uh, take the wrapped Zcash now. This is now on chain and Ethereum has really poor privacy tools. And so this is gonna be fully transparent. Um, and now you can take this and supply liquidity on Uniswap. So now you can generate yield as a Zcash holder uh, just by putting this into one of these DeFi apps. There's a bunch of other DeFi apps where you could sort of 
do something like that and just earn passive yield on your existing Zcash holdings. Uh, let's say you're done, or let's say you're now panicking about the tax complications of what are happening and you don't comprehend them yourself. Uh, you can now take this, you can now pull out your app Zcash out of the DeFi apps, and you can now send it back into your, uh, into your wallet uh, off the platform. And so basically this is opening up the world to like all these Zcash, all the Zcash holders that, you know, have large holdings, they want to either generate yield on them or they want to do something with them now can do that. Um, I think the other element here is there's a lot of governments that are afraid of Zcash and Monero. And so they just say, hey, you know, you, you guys, you exchanges that are operating in our country, you guys can't touch this stuff because we don't get it. And so now what we're hoping is that with Wrap Zcash, that can sort of plug into the compliance and analytics tools that these exchanges have uh, for Ethereum. Uh, now they can actually roll out support for Zcash, whereas before they couldn't. And so that's one thing I'm also excited about because I think now Zcash can be more widely accepted on different exchanges. Uh, more people can now access it, uh, and hopefully Zcash can become a lot more successful. Yeah, no, it's a it's a really cool initiative. I'm happy you guys are doing it. I, you know, when Wrap Bitcoin first came came out, I was like, oh man, I hope that happens with other coins. And so we, we in the trading community appreciate you guys' efforts to tokenize all that stuff and wrap it. Um, well, I, I, we're, we're sort of running low on time. Is there anything else from Tokensoft's point of view that you're working on, or even personally that you're working on that, you know, you want to tell, tell our listeners about? Uh, yeah, I've, uh, I think, We've, we've all just been really excited about Wrapped and, and seeing, you know, what else we could wrap out there. So definitely uh, check out our uh, proposals on uh, Maker, on uh, on Aave, that one we didn't put up, um, and all these other DeFi uh, protocols and, and uh, check those out. And uh, if, if uh, you know, for, for this Wrapped.com product, we're also hiring. Um, so, you know, we'd love to talk to, uh, engineers out there that are interested in seeing what more can happen with, with wraps. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. That's, that's been the extent of my work and personal life really <laughs> is getting that up. Awesome. Well, Mason, it's been a, it's been a real pleasure. I appreciate your time. Um, this is super interesting and I'm sure folks may have more questions. You're on Twitter. What's your, uh, what's your Twitter handle for my listeners? Uh, thank you for asking. Uh, my Twitter handle is Masonic underscore tweets. And uh, Tokensoft's Twitter handle is Tokensoft Inc. Tokensoft Inc. And uh, we'd love to hear from you on Twitter. So definitely uh, follow us, uh, tweet, tweet at us, and uh, looking, looking forward to uh, staying engaged. Sounds good. Well, thanks a lot, Mason. I appreciate your time and I'm sure my listeners will be in touch. <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Hey everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes go live every Wednesday at 7am Eastern. Links to our Apple and Spotify channels are in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter at BullyESQ to continue the conversation. See you next week.